This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Winter surge across much of the country slowing down now. Cases and number of people in hospitals falling. That might give people a little comfort that maybe we can slowly get back to normal, especially with vaccines around. But will relaxing restrictions again lead to another surge, especially with all the variants out there? The vaccine cavalry is coming. We'll explain what we mean by that one. The pandemic threatening another housing crisis. How can people avoid disaster? And surprise, surprise, the pandemic is changing the Super Bowl this year. We'll look into how different it is going to be. We start with trying to break the patterns of easing restrictions and then getting rising cases afterward. Dr. Eric Fagelding, epidemiologist, senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. So, doctor, these variants, they're out there. They're ready. Are they ready to pounce if we open things back up? There's completely two different um, waves here. One is receding, and that's the old common strain that we've had for most of the part of the year. And then there is the new emerging uh, strain that's more contagious, um, B117. And But right now it's growing in the underbelly. You, can't, you won't notice it because it's a smaller ripple, but it's growing so quickly and consistently. We're seeing 70% every week in Denmark. It's already 97% of all of London. And it's it's already over half the country in Netherlands and Ireland. It's it's literally taking over and it's, un, it's an unstoppable force. And it's only a matter of time. Um, that's why everyone's so worried. And how are we letting it catch us off guard because i guess if you try to visualize the graph and your normal pandemic is starting to ebb and it's going down but then you've got this other surge it kind of just looks like it's a it's the line in the middle but that other one is about to pop is what you're saying and then we'll be right back to where we were or worse right right the other the other one's about to pop over the water uh, so to speak in the next month or, or two in some places even sooner and you know, but the thing is, you know, early pandemic, the motto was no testing, no pandemic, you know, um, hear no evil, see no evil. But now we have this another saying, no sequencing of the g- genome, no mutations. You would never know that's a, it's a brand new ma- mutation. Uh, but now we're so sure of it. We, we, we've nailed it down. It's, it's precisely 55% more contagious, according to Danish experts. And Denmark CDC sequencing every single case in the entire country every single week now. And they're just that nervous and aggressive about it. And they're just extremely, extremely worried if you you talk to them. And I've worked with them. So, um, you know, and U.S. is barely doing any. You know, take, take Denmark, 100%. U.S., we're talking about like literally less than 1%. Uh, each week, each month of uh, cases sequence. So we're really in the dark. All right. So, and, and, and I do want to get into that a little bit more too, but but first to, to stick with this um, uh, variant that originally was found anyway in the UK, which is the one we're talking about, right? Um, right. But these vaccines, all the ones that are out there, Pfizer, Moderna, uh, soon probably Johnson & Johnson, uh, AstraZeneca, at least in Europe, they all are effective against this particular uh, variant, are they not? Yeah, they're effective. Um, as in, they're effective as in, I would say, effective as in anything over 50%. But, you know, keep in mind, originally, some of these were tested at 95% efficacy, the Pfizer and Moderna one. 
But I bet if you test them now, they wouldn't be at 95% anymore. And we're seeing some evidence of a tiny, smaller drop. It's not as strong of a drop. Like last week, you've heard the South Africa strain, B1351. That one created drop down to 50%. It's, I would still say that's effective, but not quite as much. This one, we're talking more, more like 10% uh, drop in effectiveness. And here's the bad thing. The B117 in itself has a sub-lineage of mutations. And that sub-lineage has acquired the bad mutation from South Africa strain. Here's the bad thing. B117 has a sub and that sublineage has acquired the bad mutation from South Africa strain. I don't know how, but it's basically developed by itself. This bad mutation is the E484. And basically that one, they've shown that the B117 normally doesn't have it. But with that, it actually evades uh, antibodies. And so we're worried about this one. It hasn't grown that much yet, but we've already seen it pop up twice in the UK alone in the past month. And we know that whenever it happens more than once, that's convergent evolution. It's kind of like when owls and bats both evolve wings. So you, you know it's the, for some survival the, reasons. The two bad things have combined. Yeah, maybe. It, this one is much more rare, but so we're not sure if it's going to take off, but it's basically potentially the bad worst combo of the two and let's so this is why we we got to stop this like this thing will keep going we're going to have more and more mutations and and the next one could be even worse and the only way to stop that is either you va vaccinate in mass like uh, like israel where they've already given shots to 60 people 60 shots out of every 100 people um they still need to go to 200 shots per 100 people of course to get full population coverage they already got 60, but, you know, U.S., we're like 6x behind. Um, we're around 10 shots uh, per 100 people. And, you know, we're just we're just so far behind in, in the vaccination compared to those situations. Okay, so and short of that, you need lockdowns. And, and that's the honest truth. All right, but we're not obviously doing the lockdowns, and we never really did. No, we're not. Right, no. and and in terms of the vaccination distribution, uh, it seems to be speeding up, and maybe it will. But the question is whether or not it's going to be in time, right, to to thwart these variants. But but that raises an interesting question in my mind, anyway, doctor, which is when this virus first emerged, the coronavirus. Um, there were all kinds of predictions, and I get it that it was new, so everybody didn't really know what they were dealing with. But nobody that I, and we've talked to so many experts, yourself included on this show over time, nobody predicted that this virus would behave in the way that it seems to be behaving, not just in the way it's mutating, but also in the way that it, it, it makes people sick with so many different kinds of of manifestations that, that normally you don't get with, with most viruses. What exactly are we dealing with? Well, this is, you know, nature is like this. Nature finds a way, right? And nature will always find a way to evolve, to evade, survive. Um, and whenever you corner it, it will try to manifest itself in a way that can get, get out of its corner. And, and that's actually the what we're seeing, you know, in, for example, Brazil, they hit herd immunity, 75% of people infected. You think that was done, but then boom, 
a new mutation and it takes off all all over again once it's cornered and 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 you use certain drugs like monoclonal antibodies that trump used or uh, convalescent plasma and we know that when you use overuse them it also corners the virus and makes the virus want to mutate now people need the drugs of course just like people need to take antibiotics but you know that overuse of antibiotics creates antibiotic resistant bacteria right and so this is we're always playing a cat and mouse with nature and we've been doing that for millions of years it's just right now when you have millions and millions of people infected you just have so many you know incubators for the virus to mutate and this is why we have to end the pandemic not chase some willy-nilly herd immunity that scott atlas would want you know, the, the life finds a way quote was kind of fun in Jurassic Park until the people started getting eaten by the dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah exactly. All right, uh, doctor, thanks so much. Stay safe. Dr. Eric Fagelding there, uh, epidemiologist, senior fellow, Federation of American Scientists. Complaints are numerous about slow vaccine distribution around the country, but help is on the way, probably. Johnson & Johnson up next in the form of their vaccine. They're waiting for FDA emergency use authorization. Could be a game changer. Easier to ship and store. It's just the one shot. Dr. Peter Hotez is with us. Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. So, doctor, uh, first things first, are you wearing one of the signature bow ties that we see on TV? Yeah, I wish I only could uh, turn on the camera. And, uh, <laughs> but you'll just have to take my word for it, okay. unfortunately. He's famous now for his bow ties. Um, doctor, so the reasons why this vaccine is coming with a lot of excitement, one of them is it's just the, the one shot, right? And two, pretty good efficacy for just the one shot. Well, you know, the real excitement is the fact that it's a third vaccine because we're not going to be able to vaccinate the American people with just the two mRNA vaccines alone. We won't have enough. So we're going to need about five or six different vaccines to do the whole job. So having a third one up is really important. And this is a good one. Um, it, it seems to give a high level of efficacy in a single dose. It may be the only one of the six that has uh, this level of efficacy in a single dose. By the way, the J&J vaccine is all this vaccine is also being looked at in two doses, and I'm guessing it's even going to be uh, even uh, better than the the single dose. So we'll have that information uh, in a few weeks. But for now, hopefully, we could start releasing the J and J vaccine. The only thing I'm a little concerned about it looks like a great vaccine, and uh, it uh, was pioneered by a colleague of mine, uh, Dan Baruch at Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital, but. The, the issue is they're only going to have about 30 million doses by April and 100 million doses by June. And a few weeks ago, we would have been thrilled at that. But now with the new variants coming, we're doing everything we can to accelerate the timetable from when we get people vaccinated. Uh, you know, it, when you mentioned that uh, Johnson & Johnson is going to probably experiment two shots uh, version of this, it does raise a question in my mind. A at some point, hopefully, we will be sort of awash in various vaccines, you know, Pfizer and Moderna and J&J &J and I guess AstraZeneca, the one done with Oxford University. Uh, will then, do you think people go, well, why should we go to take the other ones that are two shots if we can just take the one shot Johnson & Johnson one? Well, the the reason is the two shots of the of the mRNA vaccines give you somewhat better protection, but you know it's not going to work that way. You know the way things are going, uh, you're not going to have a lot of choices. And my recommendation has been don't wait, uh, especially with the new variants coming. If someone offers you 
a vaccine, take it. They all work by the same way, including our recombinant protein vaccine that we're accelerating now and producing, scaling up to a billion doses uh, in India. They all in work by inducing what are called virus neutralizing antibodies against the spike protein. They're just different delivery mechanisms. So get what you can. Don't cherry pick. Uh, and later on, if you need a booster with one or more of the same or different vaccines, depending on how durable the protection is, we don't know that for any of them right now, then 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 we'll do that. But uh, this is a time where you should not wait. There was a lot of discussion getting going when the FDA set the meeting for, I think, what, February 26th to discuss the emergency use. And people said, well, why, why so far away? Is that just the length of time that it does have to take for them to review all the material? Uh, presumably, yeah. They, I mean, what the F, what our FDA does is they don't take the company's word for anything. So, not just J and J for any company. And what they do is they look at the primary data, and and you know these are pretty large clinical trials: thirty thousand people, forty thousand people, sixty thousand people. So there's, there's a lot of data to to pour through. So, and this is one of the things the American people need to know about the FDA. It's considered the premier. Uh, regulatory authority uh, globally, and and this is one of the reasons. The the Pfizer and Moderna one, because their trials started much earlier, of course, didn't really test against the variant that uh, first surfaced in uh, South Africa, as far as we know. Uh, is there any reason to either believe that they would be somewhat effective or not at all against this particular variant? Yeah, so what you can do is people who have been immunized with the two doses of the Pfizer, the Moderna vaccine, you can look at their antibodies and show in the test tube that it can neutralize the new variant from South Africa. And it does, it's just not as well as the original strain. And that's true of all of, of the vaccines. So I think the bottom line is going to be in the Operation Warp Speed vaccines that induce really high levels of virus neutralizing antibody to begin with. Uh, even though there will be reductions against the new variant, it'll be good enough to give a significant level of protection. The one that I'm worried, the ones that I'm worried about, are the Russian vaccine and a couple of the Chinese vaccines that seem to protect well against the original strains, but start out with very low levels of virus neutralizing antibody. I'm worried those are not going to cross protect against the uh, against the new variants. Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Doctor, thanks for coming back. With job losses piling up over the past year, there's concern about another housing crisis if people are unable to come up with their mortgage payments. So many are far behind. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has put forth what it calls a roadmap on how to prevent people from losing their homes. KYW's Matt Leon talked to Avanel Joseph, Vice President of Policy for the organization, about the next steps. You know, we've had decades of uh, redlining and, and other uh, systemic policies that have made affordable housing in this country a challenge for many to achieve. Um, and it means that there's a, a, there's a debt of about 7 million affordable homes. So there are more, lots more people who need affordable housing than can actually get it. Um, even right now in some of our um, federally backed um, housing programs, affordable housing programs, it's less than a third of the people who actually qualify for the program who get the assistance that's needed. So the housing crisis has been dire for some time, but the pandemic really does shed a light on how bad it is and how the connection between health and housing are so quite closely tied. Yeah, I would imagine, I mean, if you just want to look at this straightly through the lens of trying to control the virus, 
unstable housing must complicate complicate that by a factor of 10, right? It does complicate it quite a bit. And we do know that people who have stable homes are less likely to contract COVID and are less likely to spread COVID. Um, what we don't want in the middle of a pandemic and in the middle of winter, that people are getting evicted from their homes, having to crowd into other situations with family members or friends. Um, all of that is not great to socially distance and keep the spread of COVID at a minimum. Is this something centered in the cities or is this something we see across the board, rural, city, suburb? Uh, this is something we see across the board. I and mean, certainly in cities where you have more people, it's more um, acutely felt. In Philadelphia alone, we've seen you know, over 3,500 people who have had evicted filings, eviction filings put against them since the beginning of this crisis. Um, tens of thousands of people across the country have lost their homes since March. And it's estimated that 40 million families across the country are at risk of losing their homes because of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the many executive orders signed by new President Joe Biden was specifically on the housing front. Can you explain what the, I believe it, it pushed the eviction date back uh, a few months. Explain what that does. Yeah, so there was a federal moratorium that was put in place under the last administration through uh, congressional legislation. And that moratorium was to end at the end of January. So when uh, President Biden got inaugurated and came into office, one of the first executive orders that he put into place was to extend that moratorium until the end of March. So that's some uh, immediate reprieve, which is really helpful, but obviously we're gonna need more assistance um, beyond March. This pandemic is not going away. The economic recession isn't going away. People aren't magically going to be making more money and getting more jobs at the end of March. And so we need to have um, a moratorium that's in place that uh, tracks with this public health emergency. And in addition to that, um, Congress had um, uh, introduced some uh, language to give more rental assistance to people throughout the country, but it was something like $25 billion short of what was needed. And so Congress needs to step up again in this uh, new year and add more rental assistance so that people can pay their rents, pay their back rents, landlords can pay their mortgages, um, and people can stay safely home housed. Yeah, because I think one of the problems, a lot of this, and understandably so, is looked at at people facing eviction. And a lot of times landlords are kind of painted as the villain. But to be fair, they have bills they have to pay. They have mortgages on the properties. Nothing happens in a vacuum. So, I mean, how do we address this big picture? Is this where you kind of, to your point, being $25 billion short, we just need to throw a lot of money at this to make sure that everyone across the board is taken care of? That's right. Um, you know, landlords can pay their mortgages if renters pay their rent. Um, and the rental assistance is what's desperately needed, as is getting that rental assistance to the people who need it the most. I think the harsh reality is, uh, you know, like myself, I'm a parent. Most families have kids that they're trying to virtually school. They're still trying to make it out to their jobs safely on transportation. They're trying to keep themselves safe with PPE on the jobs. They're trying to make sure they're not bringing COVID-19 back into their homes. And layered on top of that, they now have to go um, search for assistance to help 
um, help them in their hour of need to pay some basic necessities like rent. And, and the time isn't there to investigate where the help is and, and what to do. And so often people are making the choice between putting food on the table or paying their rent. Um, and so one of the things that I think cities and localities can do is work with uh, local nonprofits um, and, and other organizations to get the word out to renters who need assistance and make sure that the, that, the, that the federal resources that are there are getting into the hands of the right people. Coming up after this short break, will Sunday's big football game really be super? We talked a couple of episodes ago about how the Super Bowl is America's unofficial holiday. Well, it's more than just a game or event. It is a colossal spectacle of grandeur and excess. But we have the pandemic, and that means a lot of changes. How different will it be? Stephen Canella, co-editor-in-chief of Sports Illustrated. So, Stephen, game's going to look very different at home because of some new technology, some new cameras. Thanks for having me, guys. And it's not going to look like last year's Super Bowl in a lot of ways. It's not going to look like any Super Bowl in a lot of ways. So I think um, I'm very eager to see what uh, what the broadcast looks like. I think they are going to have some cool wrinkles for us. And I think, you know, the really interesting thing is going to be what the game looks like on the field, too, because I think these players are going into this game unlike any other Super Bowl we've seen before. This is just like another game for them. Like the, the Chiefs aren't even arriving in town until the Saturday, uh, until about 24 hours before the game. Uh, Tampa Bay obviously playing at home. Um, so they're not traveling. It's, you know, the nerves, the sort of excited, pent up excitement after a week of buildup, you often see, you know, when the when the game actually starts, I think it's going to look a lot different off the field. I think it's going to look a lot different on the field. Um, it's a weird year, but uh, I'm really excited to watch. Yeah, no media day and the, the whole week walk up and all the parties and all those sorts of things. That's that's all gone. There will be some fans. And then I guess what? Some people in Florida are going to try and probably gather around there, but they're clamping down as much as they can. So even those those wide out shots of everything are still going to be different, too. Yeah, I think there's going to be a little little less buzz in the in the uh, in the stadium. Um, you know, uh, I think they're talking about 21000 people in there in the stand. So that's, uh, you know, roughly a little less than a quarter capacity. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be less noisy. It's going to be less, bu- less buzzy. And, you know, I think the scene down in Tampa, from what we're hearing from our people down there, we have uh, SI has a much smaller contingent than usual down there, uh, as everyone does. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, everything's a little more subdued. Fewer parties. There are still a few parties going on, fewer gatherings, fewer people in the street. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it, it's different. Um, but uh, in some ways, this is trending toward what the Super Bowl has kind of always been, let's face it, it's a made-for-TV event, and uh, I think uh, it's going to be even, even more made-for-TV than uh, this year than, than in past years. You know, I'm sure a lot of folks watching it at home are going to wonder, even though it's not as big a crowd, uh, what did you say, it's about 25% of capacity for the stadium, they are going to wonder, who are these people? So who are these people? um sounds like a beginning of a Seinfeld joke it's uh it's uh I think they're you know they're they're having a lot of um I forget the exact percentage I think it's about 12,000 roughly half a little more than half uh can be some first responders and um that that are being uh, allowed to be there in recognition of everything they've done for uh, the entire country over the last year uh frontline health workers people like that you know when you when you factor in families team contingents uh things like that um there will be some corporate presence there, not as many clients of, of league sponsors and things like that going down there, but I think there'll be a smattering of those folks there as well. So, um, you know, I think for the people who do get in the stadium, it's, it's a limited crowd and and uh, it's going to be a, a really cool opportunity. And people, you know, in, in a strange way, the people who are there are going to be witnessing, uh, witnessing some history. Let's briefly talk commercials because lots of people like watching the Super Bowl commercials, but a lot of the big companies are not 
doing ones this year because I, I guess it's a really tricky tricky tightrope to walk. You know, if you do something too entertaining, it might turn people off because of the pandemic. And if you do something too serious. So is that the reason why some of these big corporations have decided to opt out this year? Yeah, I think it's a mix of reasons. I think it's exactly what you hit on. Um, it's gonna, No one knows exactly what the vibe of this game and this broadcast is going to be. And nobody wanted to commit to a spot you know, let's say two months ago, or I shouldn't say nobody, few people wanted to commit the money and the effort to that spot two months ago, not having any idea what, what the country might look like by the time the first weekend in uh, February rolled around. So I think some of that is like a little bit of trepidation or the uncertainty that's gripped all of our lives over the last 12 months seeping into the way uh, marketers and brands think. I think some of it is um, you know, because of uh, some of the economic challenges that a lot of brands are facing, you know, it's just it's expensive to put together a really blockbuster Super Bowl commercial. So I think some of those marketing budgets have dried up a little bit. Um, some of it, too, I think is a little bit of a trend we've seen in recent years where, you know, the Super Bowl commercial is that's a huge, huge profile spot. But a lot of brands started releasing their commercials the week before the game and things like that. It, you sort of get more bang for your buck with these things going viral than playing uh, paying for, you know, millions of dollars for the huge spot during the game. So I think this could be the continuing uh, continuing of an evolution of the way a lot of companies are sort of viewing uh, their Super Bowl marketing in general. Yeah, I mean, now we just text the spots to our friends if we like them. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, what are the odds? Who, who's who's a favorite? <laughs> uh, well, technically, the Chiefs are the favorite. And um, I, you know, I think uh, I think even even not technically the Chiefs have to be the favorite. I think they're just Patrick Mahomes is good. Uh, the Chiefs are really, really good. Um, Tom Brady is good. And the, the, the Buccaneers have a, have, have a very strong defense, but I don't think it's going to be enough to slow down uh, Mahomes, Tyreek Hill and, and uh, Travis Kelsey and all the other weapons they have. So uh, get ready for uh, a Chiefs repeat. Uh, that's that's as of five as of uh, five o'clock on the East Coast on Friday afternoon. That's my vote. <laughs> all right. Stephen Canella, co-editor-in-chief, Sports Illustrated. Businesses are coming up with ways to make up for lost profits in the pandemic, though it's not going over well with customers. A survey by the Washington Post of attorney general offices and financial departments found consumers in 29 states have filed 510 complaints of coronavirus-related surcharges at dentist offices, senior living facilities, hair salons, and restaurants. Some states allow for businesses to tack on, you know, extra fees as long as they are disclosed up front. It is unclear exactly how widespread coronavirus surcharges are right now. Won't find one here. We give you this for free. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. But we do accept tips. No, we don't.